You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's been a bunch of research showing that making people reset their password every three months makes it more likely that they're going to reuse passwords across websites. And that's actually more detrimental than letting them have the same password. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some fun stories to share this week, and later in the show we have Joe's interview with Alyssa Redmiles. She's an incoming professor of computer science at Princeton, and and she studies behavioral modeling to understand why people behave the way they do online. And Joe, we are back. Uh, before we get to our stories today, I have a couple of little bits of business to attend to. First of all, I want to thank the folks at Know Before for hosting our show last week at their K Before Con. That was awesome. Had a lot of fun, and thanks to everybody who came out there. It was really great to meet so many listeners face to face. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, we all need shirts to say I'm not Dave on them, though. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's the people question people ask. Are you Dave? Yeah, right. No, no, I'm. I'm. I, well, I just need a shirt that just says Dave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of you have shirts that say not Dave. Not Dave, right. Yeah. Just an exclamation point, Dave. Yeah, well, we'll get on that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So beyond that, uh, we got a note from a listener named Yahuda. And he wrote in, he said, hi, guys, your podcast is amazing. And I'm working on catching up on the backlog of episodes. Awesome. Along the way, I started wondering how much my paranoia over security was having an effect on those closest to me, especially <laughs> my wife. I needed to know if my wife would hold up to a fish from someone impersonating me. I created a new Gmail account with only one letter different from my own and sent her the following. Hey. I don't seem to have your Gmail password in my LastPass anymore. Can you please send it to me so I can add it? I'm glad to say that she responded by only giving me a small hint to the password. I followed up and tried to push my luck by saying, I'm blanking on it. What is it again? I got a WhatsApp message from her letting me know that she'll just add the password into our LastPass account. Thank you guys for the podcast, and just know that it makes a difference not just for those of us who listen, but also to those around us. Keep up the great work. Yehuda. Uh, his right. wife is pretty savvy. His wife is pretty savvy. And yep. I, I have to say, uh, when you decide that the way to check on something with your spouse is deception, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, sounds like all's well that ends well. And uh, I wonder how he responded to that WhatsApp message. Did he go, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Did he try to play both sides of this? No, it sounds like she's got his number. So right. uh, good good for her. Good for both of them. Yeah, but that's uh, some sec <laughs> some good security practice right there. Yeah, yeah. Good I for like her. It. She did yep. all the right things. Yep. And, and they're using a password. Manager, that's so. excellent. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Congratulations to both of you. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our stories. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Well, today I'm talking about a blog post from F-Secure, and we'll put a link in the show notes. And during their routine monitoring over the last three months, F-Secure has noticed some interesting patterns about attachment types hmm. in spam and phishing emails. So if you go to the blog post, there's a nice pie chart of all the types of malicious attachments. Take a guess. What do you think is number one? Mm, uh, let's see. Number one type of attachment, I would say some kind of office document. That, that's exactly right. Mm. Number one is office documents. If you okay. sum all those different pieces of the pie chart up, they're the biggest one. Right. Followed closely by zip files and then PDFs. Hmm. What's interesting in this post is that there's a little tiny sliver of it called ISOs. 
All right, we're going to come back to that because that's really the main crux here. Okay. So they found some zip files that were delivering GAN crab ransomware. Right. Office files delivering TrickBot, which is a banking trojan. Mm -hmm. PDF files being used for phishing American Express, as well as those winner scams. Right. Uh, hey, yeah, you're yeah. a winner. Send me money and I'll send you thousands or millions. Yep. And then ISO and IMG files to deliver Agent Tesla and the Nanocore rat. Now, for those who are not familiar, an ISO file is an image file, usually of a physical optical media like a CD or a DVD. So not an image like a graphics image, Correct. like an imaged storage volume. Exactly. Okay. We used to download these and then write them to a CD and huzzah, you have an exact copy of the original CD. Ah, right. right? Mm -hmm. It yep. works with DVDs too. Yep. These are great for Linux distributions, right? Mm -hmm. Because you just go out and get the install media immediately. You don't have to send away for it anymore. You can also buy tons of software in this format. Right. I believe Microsoft sells it like this. VMware sells it like this. It's a very common way to distribute operating systems and other software. But what's interesting is now you don't acquire this ISO however you get it, right? And then burn it to a CD or a DVD. Mm, right. Most modern operating systems can just mount it like it was a piece of physical media. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right? This is great because it gets you the software right away and you don't have to go searching around for a blank DVD. It's really tough to find those things anymore, right? Well, and it's probably faster rather than running off the optical media. Right. Right. Yep. To do the install, it's probably faster running off your hard drive. Yeah. If you put this thing on a SSD, the data is going to come off of that a lot faster than it will off an optical drive. That's 100% correct. Yeah. So that's easy, right? Well, authors of malware have realized that it's easy too, mm. right? And that's the problem. And F-Secure notes that since July of 2018, there has been an increasing trend of attackers using these disk images to deliver malware. It's a small sliver of the pie, but here's my security expert prediction. Okay. That piece of the pie is going to grow. How come? Because it's it's becoming more common for these operating systems to be able to mount these things easily. And people are not viewing this as an attack vector. Hmm. They're cautious of, you know, dot .doc and dot .docx. They're cautious of Microsoft files. Yeah. Right. They're cautious of PDFs, but they may not be as cautious as of ISOs. Mm, interesting. So I think this represents a risk. I just want to tell everybody that, yes, an ISO can contain a malicious payload as well. In fact, most recently, they have seen campaigns using this technique to deliver Agent Tesla, which is an info stealer, and, of course, the Nanocore Rat, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. With an ISO image file, when mm -hmm. that mounts right. and the OS thinks that it is a physical volume. It, it is a physical volume. It's a valid ISO file. Is it possible for something, when that is mounted, to auto-execute? It is possible for that to happen. I, I don't know how much that happens now. I think Microsoft has uh, disabled a lot of what used to be the auto-run INF mm -hmm. file on these things. I don't know if that's a real concern, but what's happening in the files that F-Secure has observed is it contains an executable file called recentpayment2019.exe. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. and if you execute that file, it installs Agent Tesla. So it's the same old tricks, but they're just using a new vector of using the ISO. So mm -hmm. you still have to click on the EXE to get it to run in this campaign. What's interesting is they also were distributing this ISO right beside a malicious Word document as well. Hmm. So if you enabled macros, you got the malware. If you open the ISO file and ran it, you got the malware. Yeah. All right. Well, something uh, to look out for. Be aware that any file you get can be malicious. Yeah. 
All right. My story this week is about some text messages that are being sent out impersonating local hospitals. Hmm. This comes from uh, WMTV, which is uh, from Monroe, Wisconsin. And there's a text scam that's been making the rounds out there. And uh, it's people, uh, the bad guys, claiming that friends or relatives are in the hospital and seriously ill. Huh. have uh, one of the text messages here. It says, this is Platteville Hospital messaging. Your relatives is with us now. Condition is worrying. You should call us ASAP. And then there's a link. What's interesting about the link is that it, it's a dot .fun domain, which huh. I don't believe hospitals generally uh, right. use. <laughs> I don't, so that should be... A, I don't think we use it. <laughs> no, I, I don't even know what it is. But uh, that would be a clue. But I guess, as always with these things, the point is, by the time you get to that point, I could imagine someone seeing this and saying, oh my gosh, right. one of my relatives is in the hospital mm-hmm. and they're in bad shape. I better click on this to see see what the see what's see going what it's on. about. And when you click on it, of course, bad things happen. It's it in- malicious installs link. the malicious link. Yeah, and of course, the the folks are saying from the Wisconsin uh, Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection that of course you should never click on links sent by someone you don't know. Right, and that these things are scams. Uh huh. Of course, um, they are. yeah. This has a couple of red flags. Yeah, right? but the, the short circuiting of right, exactly. Uh, you know, the idea here is that they're going to get you to be a Afraid for your relatives, which is a very strong fear that almost all of us have. Right. Right. What's interesting is there's no specific information in here. I wonder if the vaguity of it helps play on the fear. I think it does. Yeah. I think it does because you fill in the gaps right. yourself. I mean, all of us probably have, we all have plenty of relatives, mm-hmm. right? And the first thing it goes to is who could it be? I right. need to know who it is. Is it? Yeah. Let's find out who this is. Is this somebody I, I care about or maybe it's a cousin? Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who I'd be okay with. Being <laughs> right. Finally, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll inherit my fortune from that long lost cousin I never liked anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's horrible. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. That ambiguity, but but also, like you said, a couple of red flags here. There's the slightly broken English. Right. Your the, relatives uh, is with us now. Right. The dot fun domain for a hospital. Yeah. There, yeah. there, uh, you know what? There is no fun in a hospital. <laughs> That's right. It's true. It's true. Uh, what are you looking to do this weekend, Joe? I don't know. Why don't we go hang out at the hospital? That's right. a, that's that sounds a like a good fun. time. I suppose, well, maybe newborn babies. That's uh, Yeah, that's what, pretty cool. Once they've arrived, the, yeah, actual, the actual delivery yeah, can be an that's ordeal. that's not fun. <laughs> I've been through that twice. <laughs> yeah, boy. boy well, I, I've watched my wife go through it yeah, twice. Yeah, that's bad enough, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, that is my story. We'll have a, a link to it in the show notes, of course. It's a, a quick one, but uh, important. That one's making the rounds, so make sure you share it with your friends and family, uh, not to fall for a message from a hospital. Right. All right, time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day this week comes from a listener who's also named Joe. Ah. He wrote in with this. He said, thought you might appreciate this little altercation I had with an obviously fake profile before I blocked and reported it to LinkedIn. Now, before we go through this, uh, Joe, I will be the uh, the person trying to do the scam here, and you can play the part of Joe because... You are a Joe. Yes, I, I uh, see this Joe at the meetings. <laughs> right. Yes. So, uh, so this uh, is a LinkedIn request, and there's a picture of a woman here, and uh, she looks like quite an accomplished woman. She's standing in front of a fighter jet right. in her pilot uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, attractive lady. Says, uh, Bree Scott is the name, and it says, I'm a United States Army sergeant. Mm-hmm. So I will start off by reading the part from Bree. My name is Bree Scott. 
United States Army Sergeant, I like meet you and to be your friend in a sincere and mutual friendship between us. Contact me on my email address when I am less busy. I will writ you. Hey, Bree, that's fascinating. Which regiment do you serve? Email is better to enable me express myself very well to you. Oh, okay. Why is that? Was your regiment close to LinkedIn headquarters territory? Write to my email. And that's where it ends. That's where Joe reported it. A couple of things here. Obviously, well, all kinds of red flags here. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the United States Army. But uh, I did a little digging with this one and just a quick Google searching. And it uh, turns out that Bree Scott is evidently a well-known author of love poetry. So I guess our scammers get a few style points there for uh, trying some sort of romance scam from right. an author of love poetry. Well done. Yeah. I also did a, a Google reverse image search of the profile picture. Uh-huh. And of course, uh, Google has a, a function where you can upload an image and Google will attempt to match it with the things they have in their database. Yes. And sure enough, I found the original source image. And it turns out that the woman in this image is actually, her name is Amanda Weeks. And she was the lead solo pilot of the Air Force Thunderbirds 2008 demonstration team. Okay. So she is actually a badass pilot. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, I would hazard to say that it's highly unlikely that she's out there trolling for lonely men on LinkedIn. As a sergeant. Yeah. Right. She probably she's has- She's an uh, officer. She has, she has opportunities. Yeah, right. I'm sure. She, I don't know anything about her, but uh, certainly an accomplished woman who uh, right. wouldn't have to be uh, scraping around on LinkedIn for the bottom of the barrel. So not, not that you're the bottom of the barrel. Joe, or, right. a, or any Joe for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the fact that this is a LinkedIn messaging system. Mm-hmm. I've never received anything like this on LinkedIn. I mean, yeah. I get spam all the time on LinkedIn, and I get recruiters contacting me all the time on LinkedIn. Right. Never right. this. I never get a romance scam starting on LinkedIn. No, I haven't either. The The scammiest thing I get on LinkedIn are people who want to try to help me promote my podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get That's that all the time. pretty too. Yeah, they are. They are. So, all right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Joe's interview with Alyssa Red Miles. She's an incoming professor of computer science at Princeton, and she studies behavioral modeling to understand why people behave the way they do online. And we are back. Joe, you recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alyssa Redmiles. Right. Tell us a little bit about her. She's an incoming professor of computer science at Princeton, and she studies the economic decisions that people make with their security online. Mm. It's a pretty good interview. Let's check it out. All right. What have you found as to why people do not behave in a secure manner? What are the factors that influence that? So there are a couple of big factors. One of them is kind of socioeconomic status and resources. So one of the things that we see is there's a pretty big digital divide in which people who don't have certain levels of education or even certain levels of experience and skill online struggle with things like identifying spams and scams or may have difficulty understanding and taking action on security advice. Another large factor that we see is that we often, as security professionals, don't make particularly economically backed trade-offs when we're thinking about asking people to do security. So we're sort of asking people to do a never-ending list of things without archiving old ones or measuring exactly how much this new behavior is going to help someone. So eventually users become overwhelmed and then they just try to pick between behaviors on their own, which they may not be very well equipped to do. Do you have an example of security behavior that we shouldn't be using anymore that people still use? 
Sure. So one of the big ones is password expiration policies. So there's been a bunch of research showing that making people reset their password every three months makes it more likely that they're going to reuse passwords across websites. And that's actually more detrimental than letting them have the same password, because unless that password has been breached, um, there's really no harm to it. And there's a better chance that someone will create a strong password for each site and be able to remember it if they don't have to keep learning new ones. You also found in your research that there was differences in spam vulnerabilities? Yes. So in a large-scale study I did with Facebook looking at why people fall for spam, what we saw were a few things. So one was that we observed that women fall for spam on Facebook far more often than men. And we looked into why that was the case. And it turns out that there's not necessarily a difference in skill or anything else between men and women. Uh, but rather, women get shown a lot more shopping spam, and men get shown a lot more media spam, things like videos of gory things like beheadings. And those videos are much more easy to detect as spam than the shopping spam, because you see lots of shopping posts on Facebook all the time. And so spammers are really smart in knowing that people's interests are going to align them in certain ways. So the newsfeed is going to route shopping spam, for example, to women, and therefore they're going to be more vulnerable and they're going to target their calls to action and what they're trying to get out of the spam precisely to who they know is going to be their consumer. The other thing we found was that users who are in particular countries where there was a lot of spam or users who had low internet skill or low resources were much more likely for, to fall for spam because they didn't necessarily have the ability to detect the heuristics that can help people figure out Hmm, this doesn't really look like something I should be pursuing. Whereas once you have more experience on the platform and online and more kind of general internet skill, you've gotten enough experience with different kinds of content to be able to sort of pick out the things that look suspicious. So what do you recommend people who may be new to a platform or new to the internet? How do you recommend they defend themselves against these kind of attacks? Honestly, a lot of burden for that is uh, actually on the platforms themselves. Uh, so there's different training programs that various companies are exploring right now for trying to kind of onboard new users who are coming onto the internet or onto a platform to give them sort of general skills. So this isn't necessarily like the phishing trainings that you'll see in enterprises, although those are effective as well. But this is even before that, helping people explore the platform in sort of a guided way such that they do have some sense of what usually would be coming online. The other thing we've seen is very helpful for people is to have some sort of security advocate identified in their network. So this is someone who they believe has expertise and hopefully actually does have some expertise, perhaps a background in computer science or in IT. If that person is available in their network or in the case of social networks, some companies have been exploring sort of assigning one of these kind of advocates to people who are new to the platform so that if they see something suspicious, they can ask someone to check on it before they interact with it. So in terms of training, like you're, are you envisioning something like Facebook would have, here's a video that you should watch before you use our platform? So more interactive, probably. So one thing that they currently have at Facebook actually is a digital skills training center. Um, it's focused around small business owners, but it actually sort of removes certain features from the platform and shows people those features individually before giving them sort of the full scope 
of what's available. Now, you said that telling people not to click on links is not a viable solution. Frequently, that's what we say, particularly with emails on this podcast. Are you referring to emails or, or are you referring to spam messages in Facebook Messenger or direct messages from Twitter? So often the advice will be kind of more broad and it'll say, oh, you should be suspicious of links that you find online, which is a good practice that will keep you safe or you shouldn't click on links that you don't know. But in the ways that people actually explore the internet or use email, we're every day kind of using other heuristics that aren't necessarily about the link in order to figure out what to do and not to do. So if I were to tell a regular user, especially one new to the internet, well, you should not click on links, you get an email that would negate them in some ways being able to use their email in the ways that they want to. So we're hoping to find and identify more specific pieces of advice that people can bake into their advice documents that get a little bit more narrow about what people should do without giving these sort of broad things that may not feel tangible enough to the users. So you also did some research on the rationality of people in terms of using two-factor authentication. What did you find there? So we often talk about user security behavior as being a kind of random or irrational, or perhaps they're just not focusing on security, and therefore this is why they don't make secure choices. And so I wanted to test uh, the degree to which economic models of rationality or bounded rationality fit how people made choices about two-factor authentication. And in order to do this, I had people create accounts in an online system that functioned like a bank account. So they uh, would receive money for participating in the study, and the money they were going to receive lived in this bank account that they were creating. And they had the option to enable two-factor authentication for the account. And in these experiments, they were given an explicit risk that the account was going to be hacked. So say your account has a 20% chance of being hacked over the course of the study. And when they were offered two-factor authentication, they were told that if they enabled two-factor, it would reduce their risk of hacking by some explicit amount. And we varied that explicit amount between 50%, which is a coin flip, and 90% or near-perfect protection. And what we find is that people don't behave perfectly rationally. So if we were to compute how much time they spent on two-factor times their hourly wage, so like how much time they lost from not doing other experimental tasks while they were doing our two-factor, and compared that to their protection that they gained of their study incentives, we see that they behave uh, strictly rationally, where they only do two-factor if doing so is cheaper than just getting hacked about 50% of the time. But uh, despite the fact that they're not perfectly rational, which isn't maybe so surprising, we do see that they're boundedly rational. So we can explain their behavior very well as a function of five factors, uh, which are the risks and the costs we told them, so typical kind of rationality factors, um, as well as some cognitive biases. So people are biased by something called the endowment effect. So if we give them a bunch of money at the start of the study and they're protecting this large sum of money to begin with, they are more likely to enable two-factor authentication than if they have to earn that money through the course of the study. Um, and this is something that pops up in behavioral economics experiments in other contexts. People behave differently around money they already have than money they're earning. The other bias that we see is that people are very biased based on the types of risks we present to them. So something that seems very risky and that they've encountered a negative experience with in the past is going to make them more likely to engage in a protective behavior. And finally, they like to stick with behaviors 
factors that they already do. So they anchor to what they've done in the past. So if they did our study uh, multiple times over a period of a month, they tend to stick with whatever they did the first time. So if there's someone who tends to do two-factor authentication, they want to stick with that. If there's someone who usually doesn't, they want to stick with that, although they will adjust if we put them in a very extremely high or very extremely low risk setting. It may be worth waiting a couple of weeks to prompt me to enable two-factor until I actually value the account, and I may be much more likely to do it then than if you start prompting me, I get in the habit of saying no, and then even once the account has gained value, I'm like, well, I usually say no, so let me just keep saying no. Wow, uh, interesting stuff, Joe. Nice job there. She really had some good information to share. Her research is very interesting, I think, and she has a lot of it online. You can look it up. One of the things that she talked about was, you know, the sunsetting of the old practices. You know, we have all these things that we tell people as security professionals, and it's time to start changing the old ways we do things, right? Mm -hmm. And her primary example is stop forcing people to change their passwords. And we've seen that recently over and over again. Again, I'm going to say that that's that you, yeah, you don't force people to change their password. You make them pick good, strong, long passwords. Mm -hmm. But you as an individual, changing your password with a password manager is good. Because? uh, Well, because that protects you from the breach you don't know about. But it's an individual policy. No one's forcing you to do it. And if you're using a password manager, you're going to get a long, complex password that's generated by the password manager. Yeah. And it's transparent to you and it's easy to do. But if you're not using a password manager and you have a very good, long password, for something, don't change that because that makes it more difficult. Or don't force people to change their passwords for logging into your system. Right. Because right. they're going to pick weak passwords. Right. That's just the way it is. The less experience you have online, the more vulnerable you are. That's not really surprising. No, I know? guess not. No, you'll be less savvy. Right. Uh, less exposure to what people might be out there trying to do. That's correct. Training and education is key. And there are lots of ways we could deliver the training. The platform could deliver it. With, you know, and when she says platform, I think she's talking about like Facebook and Twitter and those things. Right. And of course, there's this podcast, which I think everybody on the planet should listen to. I, I, <laughs> we're preaching to the choir. <laughs> right, we're, we're preaching to the choir. But spread the word, everybody. Um, you know, this, we deliberately keep this podcast not too technical, so it's approachable to, to just about everybody. Yeah. The mission of this podcast is to help people not fall victim to this kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think it's a good point, too, about the platform. Platforms that the platforms, uh, right? That an onboarding process could yeah. go a long way for uh, teaching people how to better protect themselves. Right. I really like the idea of reaching into the very nature of the social platform and finding security experts within that area, and having them mentor and help other people on the platform. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know that I have time to do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you do help people in other ways. I do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the whole thing about what motivates people to do things, just fascinating. Her notion of, of not prompting someone to enable two-factor until they have discovered the value in that account. Right. That's that's fascinating. That's new to me. Yeah, that is kind of new information. I thought that was a really good finding that she had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's easy. If think about yourself setting up like a Gmail account, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to set up a Gmail account, and if this works, then then great. But over time, if I start using that Gmail account, and it becomes important to me, and then Google were to say, do you want to secure this with two-factor authentication? That's a different economic decision for me, Yeah. right? But this is the email account I use most of the time to communicate with people. Yeah. You know, when I set up my main Gmail account, 
it wasn't that important to me. I just wanted to get a Gmail account. Right. My main account was actually on Yahoo. But now that's where all of my uh, all of my spam emails go. Mm-hmm. And my main email is my Gmail account. And I even think that the way that, for example, like Gmail could word that, they could say, you know, we, we notice you're making good use of your Gmail account. Right. It seems to be important to you. Here's a way you can protect it. Exactly. That's a good point. And yeah. I think Alyssa would agree with you on that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, really uh, interesting stuff there. And thanks to Alyssa for taking the time to join us. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive producer is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.